You're listening to KXRY Portland at 107.1 and 91.1 FM and KXRWLP Vancouver at 99.9 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. X-Ray. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. Every year, the U.S. Navy spends $15 billion on ships. I christen thee Maury. May God bless this ship and all who sail in her. Aircraft carriers, submarines, destroyers, they are the embodiment of American power. But before that, they're steel and aluminum welded together by blue-collar workers in sometimes dangerous circumstances. You know, it's like going underwater diving without uh, air. You know, you can't breathe underwater. But that's what you got to do to feed your family in this corner of the world. On this episode of Reveal, deadly shipyards. But first, this news. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. And today we return to an episode that first aired back in February. On Friday before Thanksgiving, late afternoon, 2009, Joey Petty had a job nobody wanted. He had to go into this tugboat the size of a large house and paint the crawl space underneath the engine room. You know, it's like a two-foot by two-foot horseshoe-shaped tank goes running under the engines, and they got holes in them you got to crawl through about the size of a five-gallon bucket. So I'm a small person, so guess who always got stuck in the little places? He knew it was going to be uncomfortable, crawling around on his hands and knees, dragging a paint hose with a spray gun at the end. He also knew it was going to be dangerous. He got a plastic onesie and goggles to keep the paint off his skin. But in a confined space like that, he'd also need industrial fans. Even with a respirator, the fumes could build up in his lungs. You know, it's like going underwater diving without uh, air. You know, you can't breathe underwater. Same way with uh, painting. But when Joey checks out the engine room, there aren't any fans. So he goes to his boss, Danny Cobb. And I told Danny Cobb, I said, I'm not spraying that without no ventilation. He said, well, if you don't spray it, you're fired. Joey doesn't want to get fired. On the Gulf Coast in Mississippi, shipyard jobs pay some of the highest wages for workers without a college degree. But he also doesn't want to breathe in toxic paint fumes. So he scrounges a fan from another ship and walks down the dock to the tugboat. As I was stepping on the boat, it just a uh, boom, boom, boom. Three big flashes, explosions. For a moment, he just stands there. And then people start to stream out of the boat on fire. A young gentleman, he, he come out there and hollering, help me, help me. And his skin was just dripping off of him. A guy named Robert, he was coming off. He had a head on fire. I said, man, you need to put your head out. He just walked on out the gate. Didn't grab his hard hat or clothes or nothing. He just left. The two men still inside the boat were dead.
Joey was a shipyard painter and sandblaster for 28 years all across the country. So we asked him, if he made a list of all those shipyards from the safest to the most dangerous, where would he rank this shipyard owned by V.T. Halter? Uh, V.T. Halter, they would be between half and three-quarter down the list. They're not the worst one by no means. I've seen some bad places. But that's what you got to do to feed your family in this corner of the world. This corner of the world. The Gulf Coast of Mississippi and Alabama is kept afloat economically by the shipbuilding industry. But the shipbuilders are kept afloat by you and me and other U.S. taxpayers because most of the money going to companies like VT Halter, billions of dollars each year, comes from contracts with the U.S. military. Reveals Jennifer Gollin has been following those billions, digging into how the U.S. Navy awards contracts to shipbuilders and asking if those contracts make workers like Joey more safe or put them in harm's way. We'll have an update at the end, but first, the story that aired a few months ago. Here's Jennifer. The first guy that Joey saw running off the boat, the guy whose skin was melting, that was Bram Eights. He actually survived, and he's the key to understanding what happened in the boat that day and what happened after. He's now divorced and living at his mom's house in Moss Point, Mississippi, on a street that dead ends at a swamp. He must be Bram. I met him there with my colleague, Good. Stan Alcorn. Stan, how yeah. are you? Yeah, how about yourself? Good. Good, thank you. Bram is 36, but he carries himself like someone much younger. He slouches, shuffles his feet, and he's always drinking root beer. Just having a morning root beer? Yeah, hell yeah. Is that your thing? He shows us around the yard where there are these pit bulls chained to posts. Lola, Dixie, and Achilles. Just like the warrior. They look ferocious, but they're actually quite sweet. Achilles stands up on his hind legs and gives Bram a big hug. Who you love? Who you love? And then we go inside to meet Bram's mom, Liz. We got three families Ten people live in her small three-bedroom house. But I've still got a couch free because Bram sleeps in the recliner. <laughs> Every adult in this house, Bram, his mom, his stepdad, his brother, and his sister-in-law, they all worked in the shipyards, so they know it's a dangerous job. But nothing could have prepared Liz for what she saw at the burn unit that day. She saw her son with burns over half of his body, and his head, it was severely swollen. When I first saw him, I thought, my God, his head looked like a basketball. And I thought, son, you're not going to survive this. You're not going to live. What did the doctors tell you? Well, they kept telling me it was a day-to-day thing. That's all they told me. They did tell me that he can never hold a job in the sun again or in heat or anything like that because he'll have a sunstroke and he'll die before he knows it. That's because the burns on his arms, legs, back, and chest left him unable to sweat. The doctors also told Liz that because of his head injury, Bram would have short-term memory problems. Like I tell him, Bram, go feed the dogs. And he'll walk out there with the bucket, and he'll stand there and look around, and he'll set the bucket down. And he's looking around, and you can tell he's confused because he can't remember what he was going to do. And I'll say, Go feed the dogs, Bram. Oh, yeah. And he'll pick the bucket up. He'll start and he'll look around again. And I'll sit there and I'll laugh. I'll 
Them dogs are never gonna get fed today. <laughs> afternoon, we went with Bram back to the shipyard. We also took Joey Petty, the painter who witnessed the explosion. Glad to see you doing okay, brother. <laughs> Glad to be here. Yeah. It was the first time they'd seen each other since the accident. You blessed, that's for sure. So good Lord was looking out for you. No other reason why I'm here. BT Halter wouldn't let us tour the shipyard. So we chartered a boat up the Pascagoula River passing shipyards left and right where both Joey and Bram had worked. And then, That's the death yard. The death yard, Bram calls it. BT Halter Shipyard in Escataba. The day of the explosion, Bram and Joey were working on a tugboat being built for a private shipping company. It was floating right here next to this dock. Bram was getting the engine room ready so Joey could paint it. He was using tape and aluminum foil to cover all the valves and pipes. At the same time, other workers were prepping the crawl space underneath the engine room. Bram couldn't see them, but he started to smell the paint thinner they were cleaning with. It was wafting out of the manhole near his feet. And that's when everybody came and told him they need to do something about that smell. It was making me nauseous, making me sick in my stomach. I shouldn't be smelling it out here like that. By law, someone should have been testing the air in the crawl space, but no one did. It should have been ventilated with powerful fans, but it wasn't. So the paint thinner fumes were building up in the air to what investigators later determined was more than 600 times the legal limit. They said just a snap of your fingers like that, just a friction from your fingers right that could have caused that explosion. So they should have been using explosion-proof lights, Lights that have barriers to isolate heat and sparks, which keeps them from igniting any flammable vapors. But a guy working with Bram told him the men underneath were using the kind of lights you might find in your garage. Bram walked back to the manhole. I told him, I said, all right, now give me them, boom. I was trying to tell him to give me them lights and get out, but they gave me a light, all right. An orange fireball shot out of the hole, Bram instinctively put his hands down to protect himself, and then he pulled them up to shield his face. That replays in my mind constantly. It's just like a skipping CD. You know how a CD is skip on one word? I mean, that's just what it does all day, every day. It never goes away. It never stops. I had nightmares for a while. Had a lot of anger issues there for a while. I pushed my wife away, I pushed my kids away, pushed everybody away from me. Until I finally learned how to deal with it and how to live with it. And people wonder why I don't smile the way I used to smile. <laughs> it's kind of hard to force a smile sometimes, you know what I mean? You replay that through your mind constantly, all day, every day. I'm tormented 24-7 never goes away. On the boat, Joey tells Bram something he hadn't heard before. Do you see them rusty old boxes out there? They got paint on them, different colors. Those are game boxes. Game boxes look like giant toolboxes. They're scattered around the shipyard. 
Joey tells Bram that some of them contained unused explosion-proof lights and fans that could have prevented the explosion. But Joey says their boss, Danny Cobb, kept those gang boxes under lock and key. They wouldn't let nobody use them. Uh, because uh, if he were to use them, they get messed up. He had to order more and it come out of the paint budget, and that would interfere with his bonus. That really pisses me off. He's more worried about his bonus than he was saving our lives. Over the phone, Danny Cobb denied Joey's story, saying it was crazy before hanging up. But a second painter, David Gillette, independently confirmed it. To really understand what happened to Bram, I felt like I needed to see another shipyard in action. So I found one nearby that was building a very similar tugboat, Steiner Shipyard. It's a family-owned shipyard, and it's fairly small compared to VT Halter. But there are cranes swinging huge pipes and workers welding together the skeleton of a ferry. I speak with Steiner Shipyard's owner, Russell Steiner, inside the engine room of the tugboat. The whole time, dozens of men in hard hats are working all around us, balancing on wooden planks. We're installing engines. We're doing all the electrical work for the engines and the alarm systems. All of this almost has to be completed at one time. Next to us, there's a manhole down to the bottom of the boat, a lot like where the explosion started at VT Halter. My colleague Stan asks if someone was going to clean down there with paint thinner. Would they take a bucket I, of paint I don't thinner? Know of us ever cleaning with paint thinner. Russell says when they work with a chemical that's toxic or flammable, they do it with proper fans and explosion-proof lights. But in a cramped, hard-to-ventilate space like the one below us? Usually maybe a vacuum cleaner and wire brushes would be what we would be working on. But we just wouldn't go inside that tank and put a man with paint there. When VT Halter failed to test the air for flammable gas, when they failed to use explosion-proof lights and ventilation, they were breaking federal law. And the official enforcing that law? That was this guy. Good afternoon. Welcome to Mississippi. <laughs> Thank you so much. For 23 years, Clyde Payne was in charge of the local office of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. And we oversaw the uh, safety and health of several million workers here in Mississippi. For Clyde's team of fewer than 20 safety inspectors, making sure that all these workers were safe was like trying to hold back the ocean. Because these facilities aren't getting uh, frequent inspections. I mean, maybe once a year, maybe every few years. But to inspect all the facilities, OSHA is not staffed for that. Instead, Clyde and his team of investigators are generally reactive. They go in after something bad happens. He and his team went to VT Halter the day after the explosion. The physical damage was not as massive as you might think, but you just feel the emotion of the loss of life in the air. For months, they would come by, collect evidence, and interview employees. But Joey Petty, the painter who saw the whole thing happen, says they never heard his side of the story. Every time they appeared, he says his boss, Danny Cobb, would send him to work at another VT Halter shipyard. That was pretty easy to figure out. I'm not a smart man, but I'm not a 
dumb man. OSHA's walking through the gate. Get a phone call. Hey, you got to go. Come on, man. Don't play me for a fool. You know, I know exactly what's going on. You don't want me talking to him to say so. What do you think they were afraid you would tell OSHA? The truth. Even without Joey's testimony, what OSHA found was damning. VT Halter admitted they didn't just break the law, they broke it 17 times. For 12 of those violations, including the failure to use ventilation and explosion-proof lights, they either broke the law on purpose or acted with, quote, plain indifference to employees' safety. The Secretary of Labor at the time, Hilda Solis, called the explosion horrific and preventable. The company had to pay a fine of more than $860,000. BT Halter declined numerous requests for an interview, but Clyde Payne says the fines and bad press should give them an incentive to clean up their act. I think in the long run, they'll find themselves less profitable. They will lose business from some companies. But VT Halter didn't lose business from one major customer, the U.S. Navy. Just a month after the accident, VT Halter won a Navy contract worth $87 million to build a survey vessel. It was named the Maury and christened by Lisa Jackson, the former EPA administrator under President Obama. I christen thee Maury, may God bless the ship and all who sail in her. During my investigation, I found this was a recurring pattern. Serious injuries and deadly accidents followed by large federal contracts. Since Bram's accident, the Navy's given BT Halter more than $340 million in contracts. The money flowed in even as another worker was killed when the lid of a sandblasting pot tore into his face and another was blinded in a crane accident. And that's just one company. Over that same period, the federal government has awarded at least $91 billion in contracts to shipbuilders cited for serious safety lapses. I wanted to find out why this was happening, so I set up a call with NAVC, the part of the Navy that actually oversees ship construction. So good morning to you. It's uh, early out there. Yes, good morning to you guys. The call was with the press guy, Dale Eng, and two engineers, Tracy Bala and Mike Adams. I started by asking how they oversee safety after a contract is signed. The operations manual for NAVC staffers says they don't enforce federal workplace safety laws in private shipyards. Is that right? Oh, um, the shipbuilder has a responsibility to abide by all federal laws, and it's specified in the terms of the contract. They seem to have two answers to all of my questions. One was that they pay attention to safety all the time. The other was that the safety of workers employed by private contractors isn't their responsibility. Here's Tracy's colleague, Mike Adams. It's not that we're saying, hey, we're, we're, we're not taking care of the, the shipyard workers. That's not our job. They're, the, the shipyard takes care of their own workers. They treat their own workers. In fact, the shipyard has massive safety programs, all of them. They emphasize it all day long. It's all, if, they, if they catch one of us walking on their shipyard doing unsafe, they'll kick us off the yard. So if you're not, um, if NAVC doesn't have an enforcement role, then if a safety hazard emerged, how would it be treated? Can you sort of take me through each step? I want to go off the record. They did this a couple of times. They also put me on hold twice. Can you just give us a second to uh, talk about this real quick? Sure. 
I still want to know how they awarded contracts to companies like VT Halter in the first place. I asked them if they considered a company safety record at all, but the most I got was this. I think to answer your question, you know, about, you know, safety influencing future contracts, I, I'd, you know, for us to sit here and say that it's, I mean, like, you didn't do this, Huntington Ingalls, or you didn't do this, BAE, uh, therefore, no, you can't build the next whatever. I don't, I think that's. No, no, but actually a more likely safety scenario is that OSHA increases standards. In other words, the Navy is saying safety, that's OSHA's job. But think about VT Halter. After the tugboat explosion, OSHA fined them hundreds of thousands of dollars. But the Navy gave them a contract for more than a hundred times that amount. As long as the Navy keeps handing out contracts like that, shipyards don't have much of a financial incentive to become less dangerous. I wanted to ask the Navy about specific contracts and companies, but after telling me there were officials who could talk specifics in a second call... Uh, maybe the best thing for us to do is schedule another interview. A Navy spokesperson told me no one was available. Whatever the justification, Clyde Payne, the former OSHA director in Mississippi, says when the Navy contracts with companies like VT Halter, it sends the wrong message. When the uh, government doesn't take its business someplace else, sending the message is all right. We're not going to measure you by your safety and health performance. And if we don't step up and, me and measure companies by their safety and health performance as a part of the contract, then we're not doing the right thing. While the Navy was contracting with VT Halter for hundreds of millions of dollars, you may wonder how much VT Halter was paying the survivors of that tugboat explosion. In the case of Bram 8s, the answer is zero. But not for lack of trying. He talked to personal injury lawyer Skip Finkbonner. Would you have chosen to sue VT Halter oh, if yes. you could have? Absolutely, we would have. Absolutely, we would have. Why? They're responsible for this. I mean, it was their solvent, it was their rags, it was their buckets, it was their uh, non-explosion-proof lights, it was their hull, it was their job, and they told the guys what to do. Of course I would have sued Halter Marine. But why didn't you? Well, there's a bar, but legally we can't, you can't do that. The law makes it almost impossible for injured workers to sue their employers. Instead, payments from workers' compensation insurance are supposed to take care of them. Bram, he got $100,000 in workers' comp, roughly what he'd make in three years working full-time in shipyards. But remember, he can't work in the heat anymore, and roofing and shipbuilding are pretty much the only work he's ever done. So he's trying to use that 100000 to set up the rest of his life. He took me to see how. So is that the a short drive from his mom's house, we come to a neighborhood of small houses and RVs. Mine's there in the brown and green one. They're all on stilts. The whole area is flooded during the rainy season, and you need a boat to get home. The people here call them camps. Bram's does seem temporary. I haven't been here. Inside, the drywall is unfinished and the electricity is out. He can't afford the power bill. Outside, beams holding up the floor are falling apart and a huge tree is leaning on the roof. How much is it going to take to fix this place up? I don't know. Probably about 10000 What would it take for you to have $10,000? Like, when do you see having the money to finish it? <laughs> I don't, really. I don't see me having the money. 
He can't work, he can't sue, and the only fines VT Halter paid for the explosion went to the government, not the survivors. That $100,000 in workers' compensation, it's all Bram got, and he spent all of it. When you think back to the accident, Bram, do you ever feel like, I could have gotten more, I should have gotten more? Yeah, I should have gotten more. Yeah, I should have gotten more. This thing ought to be fully remodeled. And why isn't it done? Because I don't have the money to do it. Because by the time I bought everything else that I needed, you know, boat, vehicles, and appliances, and furniture, and it was gone. My money was gone quick. And now I'm broke without nothing. Makes me sick in my stomach. But it'll get all right. It'll get straight one day, though. Sooner or later. Something's got to give. That story from Jennifer Golland was produced by Stan Alcorn. Since the story first aired, we got some tragic news. Last month, Bram's mom, Liz, got a call from the hospital. Bram had gone into cardiac arrest. And I said, yes, resuscitate. And about 30 minutes later, they come out and said he's gone. And I just completely lost it. Doctors told Liz that there was meth in Bram's system. Liz says he'd been depressed for the last month. He couldn't find any work, and his dog Zeus had just died. I told him not too long ago, I said, Bram, you got to fight this depression. You've got to fight this depression. Ultimately, she blames VT Halter and the U.S. Navy. God's going to take care of them, the way I look at it. Because like Mama said, the dark will always come to the light. Senators Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Patty Murray have called on the Department of Justice to open a criminal investigation into VT Halter. But so far as we know, that hasn't happened. And the number of Navy shipbuilding contracts may be about to go up because President Donald Trump has promised to radically expand the nation's fleet. Next, we go aboard what was supposed to be a ship of the future. You're listening to Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX.
From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. VT Halter, the company we just heard about, is one of only eight shipyards in the country that builds ships for the Navy. Everything from massive aircraft carriers to small patrol boats to nuclear attack submarines. And these companies could soon be winning even more contracts. President Trump is pledging to expand the nation's fleet big time, from its current 275 to 350. Now, to meet that goal, the Navy would have to spend at least 50 percent more on ships than it does right now, up to $25 billion a year, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Right now, U.S. naval ships are all over the world, from the South China Sea to the Middle East. When their mission is over, many of them will come here, to the San Diego Naval Base. The massive gray hulls along the pier gleam in the sunlight. An American flag snaps overhead. Naval officers salute one another as they pass by. Reporter Suki Lewis is here to check out what the Navy has touted as one of the most versatile ships in the fleet. The USS Independence is a new class of ship called a littoral combat ship. It promised to be a Swiss Army knife of boats, sleek, agile, and deadly. It looks totally sci-fi, more spaceship than warship. The sharp aluminum nose juts out into the San Diego Bay like a giant gray razor. I walk up a narrow metal walkway into the ship. Good morning. Welcome aboard. Good morning. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Doug Maher, commanding officer. Aaron Bacon, first lieutenant. Hi. Welcome aboard USS Independence. Lieutenant Aaron Bacon's a slim 27-year-old with brown hair tucked under her Navy cap. As the only female crew member, she gets her very own bathroom and bunk. While she's only been on the Independence for a few weeks, she spent most of her two and a half years in the service on littoral combat ships like this one. Littoral means coastal. These boats were built to fight in shallow water. Uh, they're incredibly fast, so it's really fun to drive. So I get to actually hold the stick in my hand and drive the ship myself. And even the faster you go with these ships, you kind of lift up out of the water. So. So, like, how fast are you going? Uh, a little slower than a really fast speedboat that you see, like, zipping through the harbor. Aaron walks me through a big open bay that's maybe twice the size of a high school gym, where they store and swap out different mission packages. These are modules that each have a different function. Destroying mines, fighting surface boats, and attacking submarines. It's a unique concept, but it didn't come without its engineering challenges. So as the tour wraps up, I have to ask Aaron. Have there been any like major engineering problems with this ship? Or no? Um, the class as a whole, of course, has had some pretty well-publicized engineering problems. But every time I've been on board, um, we've had a lot of success and been able to operate at full power and everything. And it's been very effective. I say goodbye to the first lieutenant. She's shipping out to Singapore soon. But the USS Independence isn't going anywhere. It's staying behind for testing. That's reporter Suki Lewis in San Diego. Those engineering problems she mentioned are a really big deal. In fact, even before these futuristic ships hit the water, they had major issues. GOP Senator John McCain held a hearing about the ships in December. Taxpayers have paid for, and are still paying for, 26 ships that have demonstrated next to no combat capability. This is unacceptable. And this committee wants to know, 
who is responsible and who has been held accountable. So what we're left with now is the fact that these ships have little chance of survival in a battle space. That's Michelle Mackin of the Government Accountability Office. She testified before Congress about boats like the USS Independence. She says all that unique capability they were supposed to deliver... That was overpromising. They cannot operate independently in a combat scenario. And the modular swapping of the mission packages has not panned out either. All of the promises the Navy made to convince Congress to fund this program have really um, degraded over time. Meanwhile, the original price tag has more than doubled to about $478 million per ship. And almost every ship that's been delivered has had major defects. We're talking about uh, clutch assembly failures, um, main propulsion diesel engine uh, was contaminated with seawater. There have been some hull cracks on some of the ships. Michelle says not all Navy ships are lemons. The U.S. fleet, with its advanced technology, is the most powerful in the world. And to stay that way, the Navy says it needs room to innovate, to try new ideas, even if some fail. The biggest problem is really that the Navy tends to begin constructing these ships before the design is fully understood and stable. And that has definitely been the case with the littoral combat ship, I would actually call this program a poster child in a way for what can go wrong uh, with Navy shipbuilding programs. I just want to go back a little bit because you you said something that, I don't know, it kind of doesn't make sense to me. So the Navy starts putting money into ships that they really don't know are actually going to work? That is correct. Um, And there are lots of reasons why that happens. One is just a desire to get the hulls in the water as soon as possible. Uh, Another, quite frankly, is to keep the U.S. shipbuilding industrial base busy. Does that mean we're actually giving contracts to private companies just to keep those companies in business, to keep jobs going? That is definitely part of the story here. And I think for shipbuilding, it's particularly apparent because shipbuilding is a lot of jobs. I mean, it just is. Michelle says the other big issue is that the Navy sells Congress on the idea of a new type of ship by underselling how much it's going to cost. Remember, littoral combat ships ended up costing double what they were supposed to. Michelle says this is her biggest concern with the proposed expansion of the Navy. Is the public getting a realistic picture of how much it's going to cost? Are we getting our money's worth? For its part, the Navy says it is making changes to how it buys boats, so it can build its fleet in the most efficient way possible. But for now, it's not going to scrap the littoral combat ship program. I am absolutely confident that uh, the ships are ready to do the mission sets that we ask them to do. That's Commodore Jordy Harrison. He's in charge of all the littoral combat ships in San Diego. We asked him if he worries about sending sailors out on these boats. If I was concerned, I would tell you I wouldn't certify the crews and the ships to go. If I am not prepared to go do the mission set. I'm not going to send people to go do that for me, ill-prepared or ill-resourced. Do we have challenges? Absolutely. What I would tell you is that every class of ship, every warfare system that's developed by the military at some stage or another goes through growing pains. According to Harrison, these growing pains are a necessary part of testing out new designs and technologies. 
The failures of the littoral combat ship program have already taught the Navy a lot, Harrison says. And those lessons have value, even if it's just learning what doesn't work. If you're like me and you live and work on land, it's hard to imagine what it's like when something goes wrong on a ship in the middle of the ocean. Like, where do you turn? Who do you call? Next, we go to the dangerous waters off the coast of South America and piece together the mystery of someone who one day vanished from his ship. That's coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. Our next story takes place hundreds of miles from shore in the Pacific Ocean. But this time, we're not aboard a warship. Instead of weapons, this ship is loaded with fish. This song uh, I like to play. Uh, originally wrote it out at sea here on a transshipment vessel. In 2012, Keith Davis, a man in his late 30s, suntanned, windswept, a little scruffy, videotaped himself sitting down cross-legged on a steel-grated deck of a cargo ship, holding a ukulele. He went down to the sea. The ship gently bobs as it charges over the silvery blue Pacific, the sun setting in the distance. Keith works on this ship. He's what's called a fisheries observer. And this song is inspired by other observers who died on the job. Times we had fun. Fishery observers have got to be one of the most important jobs you've never heard of. They're informants, basically. They live on board commercial fishing boats and carefully document each haul. Their job is to prevent overfishing. They also keep an eye on fishermen who will sometimes try to pass off one type of fish for a more expensive one by cutting off heads and fins. Just one Primo tuna can be worth tens of thousands of dollars. There's big money on the line. So imagine how welcome observers like Keith are on board. Must have been his time to go. Over the years, hundreds of observers have reported being threatened, intimidated, and sometimes sexually harassed, according to federal government and other sources. Other observers have been offered bribes to look the other way. Over the past decade, at least nine have lost their lives at sea. Foul play is suspected in three cases. A few years after Keith recorded this song memorializing observers, it was playing at his own memorial. Keith disappeared on the job in September of 2015. 
At an annual conference of fishery observers last summer, a hundred or so of Keith's colleagues gathered to remember him on the beach in San Diego. His father, John Davis, shuffled up to the mic. Anyone who knows Keith knows who he is and loved him dearly. And we're, we're all, especially me, I'm just devastated by this. Hopefully uh, good will come out of this convention and we can uh, save the lives of any observer out there. Let's get it done. Let's make uh, observers out there safe. So how did a man who is known as a stickler for safety just disappear from his ship on a calm day? Did he commit suicide? Did he have a heart attack and fall overboard? Or, as many of Keith's friends and family have wondered, did somebody kill him? It's a mystery that reveals Tom Knudsen has been trying to solve for months. The first thing I wanted to do was reconstruct the last day of Keith's life. So I went to Arizona to meet his father. John Davis showed me some of the notes Keith took on board the ship. Federal investigators had returned them to him. You can see the date here, 9-10-2015. 8-35 and the Chung Cow number 818 is alongside. Yep. That's the day that he disappeared. September 10th was just another morning. The winds were light. They were 500 miles off the coast of Peru, and a commercial fishing boat had pulled alongside to offload its catch of tuna. Keith's job was to monitor the transfer of fish onto his refrigerated cargo ship, the Victoria 168. This was the last transshipment of the journey, and it turned out to be Keith's last trip, too. As any parent knows, you just sit there and you're always wondering what really happened, you know? I also sought out Keith's boss, Brian Belay. He deploys observers across the Pacific for his company, MRAG Americas. Yeah, Keith had worked for us as an observer uh, in multiple programs, a very professional individual that really enjoyed the work that he did. From what we can tell from Keith's notes, he finished documenting the fish transfer about 2.30. Then he was seen walking to his cabin to put together his paperwork so he could sign off on the declaration. That's the official record of the transfer. When he didn't show up to sign that declaration, um, they went to look for him, and that's when they realized that he was missing. Immediately, the captain ordered a search. The crew looked everywhere and turned up nothing. The captain sent them back to do a full sweep, a second and a third time, nothing. Finally, at 10.30 that night, the captain got on the marine radio and called authorities in Peru. No one answered. A chain of communications went out from the Victoria to the ship's manager in Panama to Keith's boss in Alaska. But it wasn't until 5.25 the next day, more than a full 24 hours later, that word got to the U.S. Coast Guard. Yes, uh, sir, this is uh, Commander Gus Bannon. Commander Bannon directed the Coast Guard search for Keith. When we got the call, we had known that the vessel that originally reported it, known as the Victoria 168, had already been searching for some period of time. Every second mattered. The water temperature in the Pacific was 66 degrees. The Coast Guard estimated Keith could only survive a few more hours. They had no chance of getting there in time. So they tried a Hail Mary, using computer-generated coordinates directing the Victoria 168 and other nearby boats to areas they were most likely to find Keith. In all, they scoured about 110 square miles, but it was like searching for a basketball in an area the size of Philadelphia. Two days later, they called off the search. Keith's boss, Brian Belay. 
it hit us all very hard. It hit us uh, as a company, as you know, as our friends of Keith, um, and as an observer community as a whole. That that the, something like this could happen. The unfortunate thing is sometimes things like this do happen, but something else was going on too. Keith had seen things out at sea that troubled him. In the weeks leading up to his disappearance, Keith had seen fish coming aboard so heavily carved up he struggled to identify them. He'd emailed a federal fisheries biologist asking, how can you tell the difference between a big eye and a bluefin with no fins and head? He might have been worried the crews were catching the more valuable bluefin tuna and passing them off as big eye to get around catch limits. But there was only one way to send those emails, through the captain's computer. So it's possible someone else saw them. Keith also sent a cryptic email to his father. This boat is a little bit different than I've ever seen before. And I'll tell you all about it when I get back. As it turns out, tension between observers and crew is not unusual. I spoke with many observers, and nearly all of them had stories of being harassed. I train observers, and I work with observers all the time. Cherie Smith, the former observer who knew Keith, told me about one tale from the South Pacific. When I worked with the Pacific Island fishery, they had, you know, an observer who was thrown overboard. And they found him holding on to floating debris or whatever. That case is extreme. But observers often find themselves unwelcome on board. What they see and what they report can get in the way of profits. You're the only one out there. When, you, when you're on a boat where there's like 200 crew and you, it's easy to just get rid of you to do what they need to do to make money. And it's open water and it's, it's a war for money for tuna. So life is respected differently out there. In the United States, reports of observer mistreatment and abuse have jumped from 28 in 2009 to 79 in 2015. On the part of the ocean where Keith worked, figures are harder to come by. What is known is that this fishing area is a Wild West-like frontier, where boats, legal and illegal, are chasing schools of tuna worth millions of dollars. Here you are, dropped down into the middle of a bunch of hairy-ass, hard-drinking, hard-smoking, hard-swearing guys. Reuben Beasley is a hard-drinking, hard-smoking observer himself. He's from St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. He's been at it for almost 40 years. He was a buddy of Keith's, and he knew his friend wasn't afraid to butt heads when he saw someone breaking the rules. He maybe should have backed off and made a note and said, okay, boys, you know, like... We'll report this when we get back. But knowing Keith, he probably didn't. And uh, it happened. So who's supposed to find answers when bad stuff happens in international waters? Keith was on a cargo ship that was flying a Panamanian flag, which means it was Panama's responsibility. Michael Burkow is director of the U.S. Coast Guard Investigative Service. You're dealing with ships in international waters that are flagged by other countries. The amount of U.S. jurisdiction is virtually none. Still, the U.S. Coast Guard asked to be involved, 
and was invited down to board the ship when it returned to Panama 10 days after Keith disappeared. But not long after the investigation started, Panamanian authorities pulled the plug. They allowed us to be part of that investigation for about five days. I emailed Panamanian authorities about their investigation, but they didn't respond. What we do know is Panama finished its investigation last year and said they didn't find evidence to bring charges against anyone. Panama didn't produce a report, as typically happens in the U.S. That left Keith's family and friends in the dark. Keith's father, John Davis, puts more of the blame on an organization called the Inter-American Tropical Tuna Commission. It subcontracts with observer companies to get data on fish populations. This is where, this is where my anger comes at, uh, you know, these commissions that are not doing the right thing by uh, protecting their observers out there and saying they are. The director of the Tuna Commission told me observer management is not its responsibility. And in a 2016 report, it didn't even mention Keith's disappearance. Now all observers in the fleet carry satellite texting devices so they can communicate independently. But Keith's dad believes authorities should crack down when boats lose an observer. If you're not punished for an act in the pocketbook or taken offline, you can't fish out there for a year, you know, they're going to think twice about screwing around with an observer, but such is not the case, you know because uh, we see what happened to my son. The U.S. delegation to the Tuna Commission also wants to see more done. It plans to urge the commission to take action to better protect observers from harassment and interference. But none of that will answer what happened to Keith. For now, his friends can only speculate. The Panamanian investigators, if they know anything, haven't told the Coast Guard. There was one stone left unturned, the Victoria 168 itself. Late last year, I discovered the boat was anchored in Puerto de Vacamonte, north of Panama City. But in 24 hours, it was heading back out to sea. So producer Ike Shris Kandaraja packed his recorder, hopped on a flight to Panama City, and by the next morning, he was walking up the gangway with Alex Chan, the agent for the Victoria 168. So we just boarded the Victoria 168. Yeah, this is Victoria 168. Alex handles all the paperwork and logistics for the ship. He was one of the first people contacted when Keith went missing. The ship is nearly as long as a football field. The deck is filled with industrial equipment of one sort or another. There are cranes, there are chains, there are pulleys, there are big thick ropes. This is where hundreds of tons of fish are offloaded and dropped into super-chilled holes to be brought back to shore. I'm pretty sure that it's like, in total, they can hold 1,200 tons of fish. 1,200. And how long would this ship go out? Two months. Two months. Every two months. Alex leads Ike towards the middle rear part of the vessel, what's called the house, a three-story high structure that contains all the living quarters. Smells like Asian food, salt water, and cigarettes. One floor up was Keith's last residence, a tiny cabin with just enough room for a single bed and an airplane-style folding tray to hold a laptop where Keith might watch a movie at the end of the day. A desk to prepare his notes, a drawer to hold a survival suit he had brought along in case the ship went down. One narrow staircase up is the captain's bridge. It's the cockpit of the ship with glass windows looking out in every direction. Here you can see all everything. 
And is somebody always up here? Yeah. If there's somebody always here, okay. how do you miss when somebody goes over the edge? That's the, let's say the mystery. Not, nobody knows what happened, including me. Down in the mess hall, Roy Murdoch is getting ready for breakfast. He's a new observer from the Solomon Islands. He's heard of Keith Davis, but it doesn't seem to worry him. It was a tragic situation, and I'm, my condolences go out to the family and friends, you know. And you try not to think about it. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's a part of the job, and it happened. If it happens, then it happens. Roy is stoic and serious about his job. For the next two months, his home will be the high seas. His job? To monitor the catch. Roy and the estimated 2,500 other observers out there are trying to make fisheries sustainable without losing their lives. Um, yeah, you know, and we have a lot of brothers in the past who went down in, in the front lines, like in the ocean. I have friends who, who perished at sea. It's nothing new to me. Or, as Keith wrote in his song, they went down to the sea. Some say he's lost. Maybe he's been found. That story from Tom Knudsen with producer Ike Shree's Kandaraja. As it turns out, the U.S. Coast Guard has done a separate investigation of Keith Davis's disappearance, but has not yet released its report. Many of Keith's friends are coming to grips with the fact that they may never know what happened to him. Before we go, I want to turn the tables and ask you to investigate the Trump administration as a citizen sleuth. Our partners at the Center for Public Integrity put together an easy-to-search spreadsheet of the names and business ties of Trump and more than 400 of his political appointees. It's from their financial disclosure forms. Thousands of companies are listed on these forms, and they're not all what they seem. For instance, Trump's old post office is actually his Washington, D.C. hotel. Help us track down the real stories behind the business names. Head over to publicintegrity.org slash citizen sleuth. That's publicintegrity.org slash citizen sleuth. Support for Reveals provided by the Reven David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story. X-Ray.
But here's what I tell you about the president. He's the most competitive person I've ever met. Okay, I've seen this guy throw a dead spiral through a tire. I've seen him at Madison Square Garden with a top coat on. He's standing in the key and he's hitting foul shots and swishing them. Okay, he sinks three foot putts. I don't see this guy as a guy that's ever under siege. This is a very, very competitive person. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of incoming that comes into the White House, but the president's a winner. Okay, and what we're going to do is we're going to do a lot of winning. You're listening to KXRY Portland, 91.117.1 FM at KXRWLP Vancouver at 99.9 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Good morning. I'm Jeff. You're listening to X-Ray. We want to say thanks to everybody who makes this place possible. 